Good evening, everybody. Um, so, uh, some of you, many of you, have been here for the series that we started in January uh, on the first first letter of Peter. So, we are still in chapter one. We're fish, finishing up uh, with chapter one. We're just going to look at three verses tonight. If you uh, look in your bulletin on page six, so I'm going to go ahead and just read the passage uh, to start out, and then I'll talk about it. Uh, after that. So we have a response that we uh, do, which is after I'm done with the reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and your response is thanks be to God. So this is word of God from uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So just to give you a little bit of background context for uh, going through First Peter, as uh, several people have preached already as we've been looking at it, that Peter is giving, you could say, a word of encouragement, trying to build up or strengthen the Christians that are around the Roman Empire. He uses the word exiles in a number of places, talking about how uh, they are people who are scattered uh, in the Roman Empire. And also, in in a way, uh, they're outnumbered. They're a minority in the Roman Empire, and so they feel uh, somewhat lonely. And persecution is on the rise. At the time of the writing of the letter, it hadn't really broken out to be uh, a really, um, a, a, you know, full persecution yet. But it was on the horizon. They could see it coming. And so he is writing them words of encouragement. And so we get to the end of chapter 1, and we have the passage that I just read. And right in the middle of it is this passage that may not <clears throat> seem particularly encouraging. Uh, so right in the middle of it, he says, well, all flesh is like grass which withers away. Uh, now, for some people, that doesn't sound particularly encouraging, right? Uh, to say, well, you know, let me give you some words of encouragement. Everybody's going to die. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that's pretty much what he does. But uh, I'm going to actually argue in this sermon that this is actually very encouraging uh, as we uh, as pull this apart and understand it. And it's part of what I would call the vanity theme in the whole Bible. Uh, so if you have read through uh, the Old Testament, even if you haven't, you probably have heard quotes from the book of Ecclesiastes, and it starts out in the uh, Old English version at least saying, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Right? That's sort of in our English culture, even if people don't read the Bible. <clears throat> and uh, as you go through the book of Ecclesiastes, that word vanity gets kind of fleshed out. Uh, and one way to translate it would be fleeting, fleeting, everything is fleeting, everything is temporary, everything is passing away. Uh, and so if you look through the rest of the Bible, it's not just uh, only in Ecclesiastes, but there's this, past, this kind of language that keeps coming up over and over. There, here, Peter is quoting Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, so it's also in the prophets. Uh, we see it in the Psalms, uh, in Psalm 90 and Psalm 103 in particular. Uh, if you were uh, here in the morning service in the, in the fall, uh, we saw it in James where he talks about the things of this world passing away. Uh, He says, you are a mist or a vapor. Again, that doesn't sound on the face of it very encouraging. Uh, But it's a theme that goes all through scripture, the vanity theme. And so I remember the first time I really uh, become a Christian, 
and I started reading the book of Ecclesiastes, and I was like, what is going on here? Uh, you know, I don't really understand this book. Uh, it seems like it's really a discouraging book. But I remember at the, the teaching at the time, uh, some of the, the people that uh, were really influential on me were saying, well, when you find a hard place in the Bible, then really actually dwell more on that and meditate on that more, so that because if you really have some problem with the Bible, maybe it's because you need to be taught and you need to learn from Scripture uh, what he has to say for you. And so I did. I spent a, a fair amount of time in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and um, one of the things I concluded right away was it was really being presented as wisdom. It's located in the wisdom literature of the Bible. And at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a statement that says, you know, listen to what you just read because the, the preacher of this book was a wise man. Uh, he was actually uh, um, one of the wisest people of all time. Uh, and so we don't have the ability to dismiss it. But then not only that, if you keep reading the rest of the Bible, you'll see that it keeps popping up again like it does here in First Peter, that we can't just say, well, that's, you know, um, the writer of Ecclesiastes is having a bad day. Uh, or as one commentator, a Christian commentator, uh, who is fairly respected, uh, said, well, the book of Ecclesiastes is an inspired record of uninspired thinking. Um, and, and basically use that as, a, as a, a way of dismissing the book of Ecclesiastes and say, well, it really, it's, it's not for us. It's for people who have no hope and so on. Uh, but I would disagree. I would say that Ecclesiastes is inspired wisdom uh, for all of us. And partly you see that same theme popping up all over the Bible and the Psalms uh, and so on and here in First Peter. Uh, so the question is, why is uh, this theme sometimes depressing for us? Why is the book of Ecclesiastes some, uh, sometimes a book that Christians don't like to look at uh, very much? Uh, why is it that um, when we see something like this, we don't say, well, gee, that's really encouraging, Peter? Uh, well, essentially, uh, it's depressing if we are worldly, if we have our focus on this world. Uh, and I'm going to come back to that word worldly. That's a, in some sense a really archaic term in our culture, right? I mean, almost if anything, it would seem to be a lot of people would say, well, that should be a compliment, right? So-and-so is a man of the world. That person is really worldly. Uh, that's almost like a compliment. Uh, and yet, when we hear a Christian saying, well, don't be worldly, it almost sounds like they're hopelessly outdated. They're living in the 1800s or something like that. Um, but essentially, our hearts, deeply at our core, we want something to be lasting and weighty and eternal. And we want something that we can really rest in, something that we can just say, this is sure and certain. This is something that won't pass away, that won't uh, be a vapor. And um, sometimes, as a lot of psychologists will say, that most people live in denial of their own mortality, that especially young people would say, oh, intellectually, I believe that I'm going to die, but actually, I don't really. Uh, that we really live in denial of our own deaths. Uh, and then when uh, somebody else's death happens as close to us, it just smacks us in the face and it really uh, sets us back because the reality uh, of things hit us. But most of our lives, especially in our culture, I would say, which is a very worldly culture, uh, we tend to run from thinking about uh, the long term of things. Uh, we tend to just sort of focus in on things and not like to think about things like death and decay and things passing away and so on. And at a very lower level, I would say uh, everybody hates change, at least to some degree. Um, I even was thinking, you know, um, when I go on vacation uh, with my uh, wife and sometimes uh, our kids, and we stay in a place for like a week, 
And then, like, we're all leaving at the end of the week, and I'm already kind of sad and melancholy because I kind of wanted everything to stay the same. Uh, do you ever feel like that? Like, you just want things to not change. And, of course, intellectually, you're like, of course, that's impossible. You can't, you know, keep everything static. But there's something deep in us that would be like, oh, wouldn't it just be sweet if this was like a taste of heaven? We just stayed here uh, and nothing ever changed. And so we, we have that. Um, well, essentially... Um, the attitude of the Bible toward the world <clears throat> is not that the things of this world are evil. It's not saying, well, you shouldn't enjoy the things of this world, you shouldn't have vacations, or you shouldn't have good food, or, or whatever. Um, we have uh, a bunch of places in the Bible where it says God made everything and pronounced it good, uh, and that uh, God wants us to uh, enjoy those things. But the picture that the Bible gives of the world is what we see here in front of us uh, in verse 24. Uh, the picture of a flower, a flower that falls. And if you think about it, it's really a good analogy for how the Bible views this world in general because a flower is a beautiful thing. And a flower uh, is made by God and, and is beautiful. And yet we all know that flowers dry up and they don't last very long. And so they are nice while we have them uh, and they pass away. And so in a way, you could say um, the, the theme of the vanity theme of Scripture and Ecclesiastes is only depressing if you want flowers to last forever. Uh, if you're willing to say, I just enjoy the flower while I have it, and then it passes away, uh, then it's not necessarily depressing at all. Um, so we can sort of just enjoy things while they're there. But the contrast that Scripture makes basically is to say, if you're resting in this world, if you're putting your hope in the things of this world, it's like trying to preserve that flower and hope that that flower never dies and you're just fighting against reality because you know that that flower can't last forever and it's going to dry up uh, eventually. So here's the, the contrast that basically the book of Ecclesiastes and all of this vanity theme is making. It's not saying everything is fleeting and passing away. It's making a contrast between the world uh, and the flesh, which is passing away, and God, who is eternal and weighty. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is not saying there's nothing to put your rest on. There's nothing uh, to find that solid rock. It's saying all of these things that you put your trust in are fleeting and, and, uh, and light, but God is not. Uh, God is the one who is eternal. God is the one who can bear the weight of resting on him uh, who has the, uh, the eternal power, the eternal nature of God that we can rest in. And so, in some ways, when we look at this vanity theme, we can think of it uh, connected to the curse. We can think of it, you know, that when uh, Adam and Eve sinned, there was a curse put on this world, uh, and, and there's many things that are wrong with this world due to sin. But at a more fundamental level, the contrast is really just that there's nothing that could bear our full weight, no created thing, because only God truly is eternal. So even if people had never sinned, even if people had never uh, fallen uh, and the world was not under a curse, it would still be the case that no created thing could take the place of God, that we could not put our full weight on any of those things, uh, that only God can fill that hole in our hearts that wants something absolutely lasting uh, and permanent. Um, so if you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, again, it's, it's, it's sort of structured in a way to knock down like everything that you would want to put your weight on. And, uh, you know, just a real short summary of Ecclesiastes here. Uh, he starts out with pleasure. 
and said, boy, I was the king, you know, King Solomon had all these uh, pleasures of the world, and now they found it empty uh, and fleeting. And then maybe, you know, he says, well, maybe you think good government, that's the solution. I'm going to work for government, and so on. Um, and, you know, I think this is oftentimes because we think, well, even if I know I'm going to pass away, if I can make a permanent impact on the world, then that's my sense of permanence, right? And yet Ecclesiastes says, look, the government is populated with fools. Like, this is true in his day. Of course, that was many thousands of years ago. Things have completely changed now, right? Um, but uh, his, his basically saying that government is always going to fail you. Children and grandchildren uh, might say, somebody as well, oh, my posterity, that's where my, my permanent thing is. And he says, well, no, your children may turn out to be fools, basically, um, in, uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And then we might say, well, what about education and knowledge? Surely that is something weighty. And Ecclesiastes, the uh, writer again says, uh, well, actually, the more you know, the more depressed you get about how hard it is to change anything, uh, how hard it is to make anything better. Uh, and you see how little you know, and you see how much sin can thwart uh, good things. But the conclusion of, of the book of Ecclesiastes is not, therefore, just throw up your hands uh, and be depressed. But he actually says, uh, enjoy the things of this world, but don't put your weight on them. And so you have statements. I put some of these additional scriptures here. He says, um, you know, it, basically, you can summarize it. Eat and drink and find, find pleasure in the work that you do, uh, but put your weight on God. God is the one who is eternal and permanent, not all of these things. Uh, and so... Um, in a way, I, I would say uh, the concept of worldliness is one <clears throat> in which we say the things of this world are where we put our weight. It's where the things that really dazzle our eyes, the things that, that tell us uh, what's really important. And a worldly person is someone who may in fact believe in God, but marginalizes God, puts God in the corners and says, what it's really all about is success. Uh, what it's really all about is uh, pleasure. Uh, it's really about making it to the next level of the video game. Uh, it's really about fill in the blank. Uh, and those are really important. And God may assist me in that. That's nice. It's, it's nice for God to assist me like that. But he's kind of on the margins. My agenda right here is, is what's really important. Uh, and so there's many, many different philosophies in the world. And yet you could say a huge number of them are all worldly in that sense. That they say this world is what really matters. Uh, and by contrast, the vanity theme says, if you really examine these things and you look at them, uh, you will find that they're passing away, that you can't put your full weight on any of them. They might be good. They may be things where you really do make things better in a certain place at a certain time, and that's a good thing. But you can't lean in on those to say, this is really going to bear the weight of my soul's desire for something eternal. Uh, all of them are fleeting and passing away. Okay, so that's basically a summary of the vanity theme. Let's turn now to how Peter uses that specifically in the letter that we have in front of us. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting logical chain here. So in the middle of this, he starts out saying, uh, you know, you should love each other with a sincere and brotherly love. Learn, love each other earnestly from a pure heart. And then he says in verse 23, since or because... And he says, because, and he ends up with verse 24, all flesh is grass uh, and the grass withers, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So what's the logical steps here? Well, essentially what he's saying is that you should love your brothers and sisters in Christ because they have a bit of that imperishable seed of God living in them. 
that in their hearts, uh, if they are indeed in Christ, that wait, weightiness, that, that element of the eternal is actually living in them. And so you should value them enormously because of all the things that are passing away in this world, the Spirit of God is not passing away. And so when you see somebody who has the Holy Spirit uh, in their heart, he's saying that is worth so much more than everything else. That is something that makes them an eternal person. Uh, So all flesh is passing away, but people who are united to God have that eternal life in them. And so let me ask you this. um, Do you, in fact, love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Um, Not just do you do good to them, do you do your duty toward them, but do you actually appreciate them? And what Peter is saying here is you should appreciate them because the Holy Spirit lives in them. He calls it the imperishable seed of God. Uh, They have that eternal seed of God in them, and you should greatly appreciate that. And you should say that there is something weighty about the Holy Spirit dwelling in a person that far outweighs all the other things that dazzle me and distract me because people uh, have that potential to have that eternal life uh, in them. Uh, And that's kind of the logical uh, path that he takes here. I put in the front of the bulletin this quote from C.S. Lewis, and uh, I don't think I'm going to read the whole thing. But basically, he says, you've never met an insignificant person. If you think about it, every person has the potential for eternal life. Uh, And so that is uh, an amazing thing to say that we can actually be joined to God and have his eternal life uh, in us. And I'll just uh, finish with what he says here. He says, uh, this does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and in fact it is the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. Uh, Do you think about that, other people that way? Do you think that every person that you meet has the potential for God to be living eternally in them, to have eternal life? Uh, And your brothers and sisters in Christ have embraced the Holy Spirit and that, in fact, you are sort of looking at someone in whom the eternal, weighty God dwells. And so that should change the dynamic of how we treat each other. Instead of just sort of being irritated at somebody getting in our way because I'm trying to get this goal here and they're blocking me, to say, well, actually, my goals are all passing away. They're fleeting and they're maybe nice but people uh, are of eternal weight and, and eternal uh, significance. So the, the language that uh, Peter uses for this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of interesting uh, terms here. He says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So I'll just say uh, this one of these phrases. There's actually a lot of different phrases which are used in scripture. It's really, again, another theme through scripture of the idea of God dwelling in us. So we have the idea, he says, of the seed of God. Uh, We have the idea of the new heart and the new spirit. And we also have this phrase, being born again. And uh, it's funny, I don't, you know, maybe this isn't the case now, but there was a time when born again was on everybody's lips, when Jimmy Carter was president, which is before many of you were born, I know. But it was kind of like, viewed as there's this special type of Christianity called born again Christianity. Uh, that uh, you know, Jimmy Carter said he was born again, and everybody was like, what does that mean? It must be some kind of strange you know, sect of Christianity. But it's in the Bible. Uh, the Bible talks through and through about being born again. And it, again, it's another sort of word picture for that 
uh, action in which God actually joins himself to us and his Holy Spirit dwells in us, that we actually have new life in us that wasn't there before. And so being born again is not some sort of optional, higher level Christianity or some kind of weird mountain Christianity or something like that. It's a biblical concept to say that you invite God into your heart and you actually, it's like a new birth. You have a life that you didn't have before. Uh, now, sometimes we don't know when that happens. Sometimes uh, we don't see uh, exactly when that new life starts. Some people have a very vivid memory. Other people just say, for as I can remember, I've always loved God. But spiritually, there is a time when the Holy Spirit can indwell people uh, and actually be a reality that we are spiritually united to God. And Peter basically says, uh, if this is true, then your brothers and sisters are united to living God uh, you should view them as weighty and not just irritations in blocking your worldly goals. So the final thing uh, that I want to look at here is how Peter talks about this process. If you look in verse 22, uh, and also in the Isaiah quote that he quotes there, he talks about this in another word picture, which is that of the word of God dwelling in us. So he associates this born again or imperishable seed or new heart or circumcised heart or whatever you want to call it, uh, he associates, associates it with the word of God dwelling in us. And so uh, what he says is all flesh is like grass. Again, quoting Isaiah, grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then he basically is using that as support, you could say, for what he said in the previous verse, which is to say, you have been born again not through perishable seed, but through imperishable how? Through the living and abiding word of God. And so we see this uh, all through the, the Bible as well, that uh, in Old Testament as well as New. I love your word, God. You have uh, made your word to dwell in my heart. We meditate on your word and so on. And then uh, Peter, uh, specifically at the end of verse 25, includes the gospel of the New Testament in this. He says this word, now he's quoting an Old Testament passage, and yet he includes uh, the good news, uh, which is just another way of saying the gospel that was preached to you. So he's including the word preached to them uh, by the apostles as being included in that. And um, the other thing I want to say about this is just that um, he really is talking about the Bible. He's talking about the, the Bible as the word of God dwelling in our hearts. There is a, move, a movement in the 20th century um, and in some ways, I would say it's probably less of a movement in the evangelical church today because I feel like churches sort of went their separate ways. Churches that followed this movement kind of went down that path, uh, and uh, the evangelical churches went sort of in a different direction. But there is a theological movement that was fairly strong in the 20th century to separate the Word of God from the Bible, to say that, well, the Word of God is this sort of metaphysical concept of God sort of communicating to you and they would actually call it the evangelical mistake to equate the word of God with the Bible. Uh, and they would say, well, the Bible, that's all well and good, but that's just a document of people that they wrote. Uh, and the word of God is something transcendent. And it sounds very uh, God-honoring in a way to say, well, it's, we're not just fixed on these printed pages. We're, we're focused on the transcendent concept of the word of God. But the way it played out was, people found it easy to dismiss the actual words of the Bible and just go for this sort of transcendent concept of the word of God that they had and never actually let the word of the Bible dwell in their hearts and really impact them. Uh, and I would say 
that, that is a very um, anti-historical view that the church, uh, you know, at the time of Peter and the church historical, has affirmed the Bible is God's word to us. Uh, and so when Peter is talking about the good news preached to you or the word of God uh, being like a seed which is planted in you, uh, he's really talking about the Bible. And he's saying that you are those who have been born again through the word of God taking root in your hearts and giving you new life. Uh, and we see that, for example, in the additional scriptures uh, with Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, he says um, that you are fellow citizens and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which is shorthand for saying New Testament and Old Testament. Uh, he's not saying it's just some nebulous theoretical concept of word of God. He's really talking about the word spoken by the prophets and the apostles, which Peter calls the good news that was preached to you. So just to sum up then, uh, we can be dazzled by the things of this world, uh, both in a good way and a bad way, right? We can be so attracted to something that we say that's just the most important thing ever. Um, sometimes it's not pleasure. Sometimes it's power. Sometimes it's success. Uh, sometimes it's impact. I want to make an impact on the world. Uh, and um, you know, all of those really are things that we say, I'm going to have this goal and I'm going to accomplish in this world and that is going to be really sort of the purpose of my life. And when that happens, then people who get in our way irritate us, we get angry with them, they're blocking our goals. Uh, and Peter turns this on its head. He's going, he's pulling back from the Old Testament theme and says, no, God is significant and eternal. Uh, the things of this world are fleeting and therefore where we see God dwelling in the hearts of Christians, that's where we should put our weight and value. And that should drive us to really value our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, that his word is dwelling in them and God's word is that which is eternal and abiding. And all of the good things that I may want to do, as good as they are, are fleeting and going to pass away and can't bear the weight. But if I say, here are people impacted by God, that God dwells in them, they should, they should be significant in my eyes. I should see that these are people... Even if they're sinning against me, even if they're doing things that irritate me, there's something amazing about the idea of God's spirit literally dwelling in somebody uh, and having an eternal impact in their hearts. And so we should look at each other differently. We should look around and say, I'm looking at an eternal, significant person. I'm not just looking at somebody blocking my goals of getting home on time or whatever it may be. Um, so let's close in prayer.